When it comes to our founding fathers, there are a few legends everybody knows. George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree. Abraham Lincoln uh, was born in a log cabin. And there's James Madison fleeing the White House. The British burned the White House, and so he had to get out. But how many of those legends really happened? Washington's cherry tree falls, Lincoln's log cabin, true. And did James Madison really abandon the White House? He fled because there was a very large army coming his way, and it would have been senseless to wait around uh, simply to get captured. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, stories about our fourth president, James Madison. But first, we'll take a look at another founding father, Patrick Henry. Today, Henry is known primarily for one speech, give me liberty or give me death. But historian John Ragosta says that in early America, Henry was known for much more, and he was wildly popular. John, you've written a lot on Jefferson and religious liberties. Now you're working on a book about Patrick Henry. Was he really elected five times governor of Virginia? Yes, he was the first governor of Virginia. He was elected three times in a row, which was the limit. In retirement, he was often approached and said, we want to make you governor. And he'd say, no, no, I'm, I'm retired. Uh, it's time for other people to do this. Was he really that popular? He was enormously popular. No man in Virginia, with the, perhaps the exception of George Washington, was more popular than Henry. Henry was more popular than Thomas Jefferson in terms of the people, in terms of the legislature. And even George Washington, Washington was this character standing on a hill on his white horse. Henry was really understood as a man of the people. Everybody liked Patrick Henry. He knows how to tell a story. He's one of the greatest trial lawyers that ever lived. So he could relate to people. Uh, he worked as a farmer. He worked in a store. He worked in a tavern for a while for his father-in-law. And he liked people. Washington is always a little removed. He's a little distant. There's a great story of Governor Morris hugging Washington in a public meeting on a bet. And he wins the bet but says, I'll never do that again um, <laughs> because you don't hug Washington. Um, Henry is right in the crowd, backslapping, having a drink, uh, enjoying people. Any instances of early success as an attorney? Well, his first big case is the Parsons cause that originated in the fact that Virginians paid a tax to pay the Anglican ministers. You have a state religion. The Anglican ministers are paid through taxes. And there had been a law which effectively lowered their salary. So a lawsuit is brought by an Anglican minister, Minister Morey, saying, you need to pay me what I'm owed under the old law because the king said the new law is invalid. And so Henry is brought in really at the last minute to defend the taxpayers against this lawsuit. And it's clear the lawsuit's valid. But Henry, in his first famous public speech, gives this speech in which he says, look, when the king no longer is doing things that are benefiting the people, but starts to impair the people's interests, then he becomes a tyrant. This is treason. He's calling the king a tyrant. And then he also lights into the Parsons. And he says, instead of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, these rapacious harpies would, were their powers equal to their will, snatch from the hearth of the honest parishioner his last hoe cake, from the widow and her orphan child their last milk cow. This got people going. He's, he's speaking to a jury of people who are being taxed to pay the minister and saying, you know, these ministers are out, they're, they're in it for the money. And, and so what happens in the Parsons case, he loses because he was going to lose. But they give Minister Maury one penny in damages. Now, not long after that, he goes into the House of Burgesses. He's elected as a delegate. He's elected as a delegate uh, in 1765, really as a result of the Parsons case. It's in the House of Burgesses that he gives another one of his most famous speeches, the Stamp Act. This is the no taxation without representation argument. The British have won the French and Indian War. They're enormously in debt, and they are going to tax the Americans. And so Henry is, he's a junior member, and he's advocating a very strong response to the king. And Henry stands up and says, Caesar had his Brutus, Charles I had his Cromwell, and George III... What he's saying is Caesar is assassinated by Brutus, Charles I has his head chopped off by the Cromwellians, and George III, the implication is 
will be killed if he continues along this line. And, and people scream treason, treason. And Henry very quickly says, may learn from their example. If this be treason, make the most of it. Henry apparently spoke so persuasively, so forcefully, that people would say 20 or 30 years later, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember every word that man spoke. Jefferson says that when Henry would speak, uh, he couldn't do anything else, that he, was, uh, he, he would say when other people were speaking, I'd be reading a book or writing a letter. When Henry started to speak, everything stopped. The next of the great speeches that Henry is known for is probably the greatest of them all. Absolutely. The 1775 speech, the give me liberty or give me death speech is what people remember. You have the Boston Tea Party in December of 1773 and Redcoats are now all over Boston. And the question is, will the rest of the colonies support Massachusetts? Henry was out in front and was seeing what was happening. He says, we must fight. This is uh, an important statement because the question people were debating, they thought, was whether we were going to send flour and fish and beef to Boston because the town has been blockaded by the British Navy. And Henry says, we must fight. He said, if England wanted to negotiate, if they wanted to be reasonable, you don't send troops. You don't blockade Boston. And then he's responding to the moderates because the moderates are saying, peace, peace. Men cry peace. And he says, there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be bought at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me give me liberty or give me death. Now, he does this extremely dramatically when he's saying, give me liberty or give me death. He holds up an ivory letter opener above his chest and he says, give me liberty or give me death. And he plunges it seemingly into his chest below his arm and and seems to collapse. Absolute silence in St. John's Church. The church is packed. The windows have been opened to hear Henry's speech. People are standing outside, five, six deep at the windows. One man says, I want to be buried on this spot because this is the most important thing I've ever heard in my life. And he is. He's later brought back and buried at that window in St. John's Church. What was the consequence of that speech? Did that change minds? Did people mount horses and draw swords? Well, absolutely. George Washington reportedly says that he's ready to march to Boston with a thousand men at his own expense. So during this time, how was Patrick Henry earning a living and supporting a family? Henry is a lawyer. He's a practicing lawyer. Uh, He has six children from his first wife, who he had married at a very young age. Hadn't she gone insane? She, She goes insane. And she is basically kept in the basement of the home where Henry is living in Scotchtown in Hanover County, um, sometimes in a straitjacket. And she finally dies. Did he remarry soon? Not immediately. He ends up remarrying a woman, uh, Dorothea Dandridge. Today, we would say she was a trophy wife. When Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry first met at a Christmas party at the home of Nathaniel Dandridge, who was a local uh, plantation owner, a wealthy man, they like each other immediately. They both play the fiddle. And reportedly, they fiddle together for the Christmas party. If If one can imagine being at a Christmas party with Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry playing the fiddle, somewhere in the corner is four-year-old Dorothea Dandridge, who becomes Patrick Henry's second wife a number of years later. She has 11 children by Patrick Henry, so he has 17 children from his two wives. Oh, my gosh. So let's go back to his speech-making, the next tremendous speech that is well-remembered after Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death is what? Well, it occurs in the Virginia Ratification Convention in 1788. It's often referred to as the Thunder Speech. We had won the American Revolution, but we're operating under the Articles of Confederation, and the government isn't working very well. So we get the Constitution. We now love the Constitution. But at the time, it was highly controversial. And Patrick Henry was very concerned about creating this powerful national government. Uh, And he came out and said that, that this is a mistake. We ought to leave powers with the states. This is the beginning of the states' rights interests. Let let, let me give you a part of what he was saying. Uh, If we admit this consolidated government, the U.S. Constitution, if we create a new strong national government, it will be because we like a great splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. We must have an army and a navy and a number of things. 
When the American spirit was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. Now, again, this is prescient. He's saying that you're going to create a powerful national government. It will become the, the source of an empire. It will become a great and powerful nation. But that's not why we had the revolution. The reason we had the revolution was personal liberty. Why is it called the thunder speech? Well, the, the, the speeches have been going on for days. Uh, and he's arguing with James Madison, who, by the way, is not a very impressive speaker, speaks very softly, very quietly. It's coming down to the last minute. And Virginia is needed. If Virginia refuses to ratify the Constitution, you can't have a country. It's the largest state in the Union, both geographically and by population and by economy. You have to have Virginia. It's coming down to the last moment. Well, Henry is giving this speech. And one of these wonderful Virginia summer afternoon thunderstorms breaks out and the lightning is flashing and the thunder is going. And people say that, that Henry seems to be calling down the angels of heaven himself to, to rail against this uh, abomination against American liberty. Uh, <laughs> so this, is, this is the kind of power that people equate with Patrick Henry's speeches. And so when he finishes the speech, the room is black from the storms. The lightning is going off. Reportedly, everybody flees the building, runs from the building. He has the last word. He has the last word. But he loses the vote. The Constitution, of course, is radical. And importantly, something that people also forget, Henry has become a great icon of the modern Tea Party movement because of states' rights. They forget when he loses the vote. There is an effort by some of the anti-federalists to oppose the Constitution. And Henry stands up and says, no, no, we lost. This is, this is what happens in a republic. This is what happens in a democracy. And it is our duty to abide by the laws. It is our duty to go home and, and to be honest, quiet citizens. Uh, we didn't want this national government, but it is now our national government. John Regasta's forthcoming book on Patrick Henry is tentatively titled Patrick Henry, A Loyal Opposition. He's a fellow at Virginia Humanities and an historian at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. Coming up next, the minister who inspired Patrick Henry. Before Patrick Henry died, he credited a Presbyterian minister named Samuel Davies with, quote, teaching me what an orator should be. Former With Good Reason producer Kelly Libby visited the place where Davies preached rousing sermons to a congregation of colonists that included a young Patrick Henry. What you notice right away about Pole Green Church is that it doesn't have walls or a roof. It's a collection of white beams that make it more of a skeleton of a church. Good morning. I went to Pole Green in rural Virginia for an annual Easter sunrise service. It was a gathering of local Presbyterians, roughly 50 or so people, who brought their own folding lawn chairs and worshipped as the sun rose above the trees. There was once a real colonial meeting house here, one with walls and a roof, and a preacher named Samuel Davies. In 1747, Davies came here from Pennsylvania and became the first non-Anglican minister to be licensed to preach in Virginia. This was a big deal because at the time, itinerant preachers of non-Anglican faith were being jailed or fined for meeting without state approval. Chris Peace is the executive director of the historic Pole Green Church Foundation, which runs the church and teaches visitors about Davies and religious freedom in America. Peace says not only was Davies anti-establishment, he was one of the greatest orators in the colonies. Samuel Davies' last sermon here, um, records reflect that there were multitudes, that there were four or 5,000 people gathered in the grove, uh, in the trees, not being able to fit in the meeting house to come hear him and his departing words uh, to their community. One of the members of his congregation was a young Patrick Henry, who worshipped at Pole Green with his mother, 
and who became one of our nation's most important figures. Henry once credited Davies with teaching him what an orator should be. And so we know Patrick Henry is the voice of the revolution, the orator of uh, liberty, um, and to be a great orator in his own right, uh, to give recognition to Samuel Davies says a lot about Samuel Davies. Today, the legacy of Davies can be felt at Polgreen, as those who worship here do so freely. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby. Not too far from the Paul Green Church is Montpelier, the Grand Virginia State of James Madison. Madison is remembered as a key architect of the Constitution, father of the Bill of Rights, but his presidency is often overlooked. Andrew Burstein, co-author of Madison and Jefferson and an historian at Louisiana State University, says Madison's time as chief executive should be remembered. Andrew, the story is told that Madison fled when the British burned the White House and the Capitol building. Is that true? He fled because there was a very large army coming his way, and it would have been senseless to wait around uh, simply to get captured when he could go and conduct reconnaissance on his own, which he did, and made every effort to hold the government together. Now, the War of 1812 broke out on his watch. Did he declare war on the British? Congress declares war according to the Constitution, and in June of 1812, Congress did declare war. But President Madison himself was strongly in favor of getting tough with the British. He didn't shy from it. Outside the War of 1812, how was Madison received and perceived as a president? Was he successful? Well, this is one of the very interesting things about James Madison. He's generally thought of as the cerebral founder, the constitutional thinker, and his presidency is overlooked. He came in to the presidency with few people thinking he was going to be great. He was Jefferson's man. He wasn't his own man. But at the end of the War of 1812, America's economy was rebounding. And Madison went down in his own generation, in his own time, as far more popular than he was when he came into the presidency. A man who was honest, a man who was direct, a man who presided over a very trying, very difficult times and saw America through it. He didn't have to be a militarist to do this, but he had the right combination of human attributes and political sensitivity. For the remainder of his life, the younger generation came to him for advice, came to him for an explanation of what exactly did this constitution mean? What was your intention uh, when you did this or that? So he became an elder statesman and beloved in his time. This is another one of those facts that few Americans learn because Madison doesn't have a great monument to him. He's not carved into stone in South Dakota. It's thought that his career effectively ended at the end of the Constitutional Convention or with the Federalist Papers. So who was he? Where did he come from? He was raised on a slave plantation in Virginia, just as Jefferson was, a few years younger than Jefferson. How did he arrive on the political landscape? Yes, he was born in the same central Virginia landscape that Jefferson, eight years his elder, was. And they moved in similar circles as young, up-and-coming, eldest sons of Virginia planter aristocracy. But what made Madison different was that he did not take over his father's estate. His father had a long life. And the fact that he didn't have to run the plantation, Jefferson did because his father died when he was 14 years old. Madison spent all his time with books. His father funded him, sent him to Philadelphia. He really didn't have those day-to-day -day concerns that others did. And yet, one of the oddest things about Madison is that this great constitutional thinker never stepped foot in a courtroom 
to try a case. He was not a lawyer. And his greatest constitutional thinking was that which he gleaned from books, not from experience arguing cases. Madison was, in effect, a professional politician from the time he turned 21. And so was he a great mind or a lucky guy who was not made to work and therefore could read a lot? Yeah, maybe he was a lucky guy, but he was definitely a great mind. When you read Madison, you don't think of grandiose pronouncements. You don't think of how precious life is. Jefferson tugs at the heartstrings. Madison is all about getting stuff done. And that's why he was always put into positions of leadership. He was the go-to guy at the Constitutional Convention. He was George Washington's closest aide in the months leading to and directly after uh, Washington's inauguration as president in 1789. And Madison both wrote George Washington's first inaugural address and, as the leader in the House of Representatives, wrote the letter of gratitude from Congress to Washington, praising him for his eloquent inaugural address that he himself had written. He was, in fact, extremely suspicious of local government, of state legislators, of demagogues who rose and convinced the people. The silver-tongued Patrick Henry was his perfect example of the demagogue you should watch out for, whose ideas might be bad, flawed. He believed that too much democracy meant there'd be people voting who were ignorant of the issues and who would listen to a demagogue to a politician promising something who sounded good and maybe plied them with drink and then would get into office and not represent the best interests of the people or the common good. And so Madison believed that the United States Senate should have a veto power over state legislation so that if, if some dummy in the state legislature uh, introduced a bill that passed that the smarter people in the U.S. Senate thought was either unconstitutional or just, you know, a bad idea. They could just nix it. So Madison wanted the best and the brightest to, in effect, lord over those uh, that might have been politically powerful at the local level, but were dangerous to the health and well-being of the republic. Remind me of the nature of the friendship and the collaboration politically of Jefferson and Madison. Sometimes Madison the Younger had to contend with Jefferson the more socially flamboyant and curtail some of his excesses. Jefferson was frequently attacked in the newspapers for being an airy philosopher, for being a man with a very large library, but uh, uh, impractical solutions to real-life problems. That's only partially true. Jefferson was very practical-minded, but he did allow for flights of fancy. And Madison's role very often was to calm down Jefferson when he expressed this sort of passionate attachment to what he considered to be a, a grand, humane solution to a problem. And Madison understood the realpolitik and said, uh, uh, Mr. Jefferson, I, I just don't think this is practical. When Jefferson was president and Madison's secretary of state, I think you could call it a co-presidency because there was nary an executive action taken where Jefferson did not run it by Madison. Jefferson was always partial to his Virginia political allies and Madison above all of those. I've read more and heard more recently about Jefferson's conflicting views and public statements about slavery. What did Madison think of slavery during this time? Madison was, at the end of his life, the president of the American Colonization Society which was considered at the time a philanthropic organization, liberal Southern slaveholders. It sounds like a contradiction in terms to us. The colonizers believed that white and black could not live together and that eventually some sort of a violent mass confrontation would occur. And so the safest bet was 
to remove them from white society. Texas was brought up as a possibility at that time. Latin America, the island of Cuba, or Haiti. So Madison was a colonizationist. On the other hand, he had no problem perceiving African Americans as potentially successful on the land as any white man. He and Jefferson took a trip together to upstate New York, and they came upon a black farmer. And Madison wrote about how impressed he was with the skill and the knowledge uh, that this man brought to farming. Jefferson was far less open-minded. He still thought of a freed slave as Mr. So-and-so's man, where Madison could have that same freed slave at his dinner table and treat him as an equal. Did he free his slaves on his deathbed? No, he did not. And so before we go lionizing Madison, seeing him as ahead of his time, we must recognize that he was very much a man of his time. He may have been able to foresee a more socially just America, but he wasn't about to go up against the majority, the property holders, his fellow Virginians, those who elected him. So what do you think we should really understand about Madison's most important contributions to the political system in America? Madison was instrumental in creating what we call the cabinet, the president's cabinet. It's not in the Constitution that there should be a cabinet. That was a Madisonian innovation. The second thing is that in the 1790s, some of the nastiest mudslinging politics the country had ever seen took place. The first two competing political parties were at each other's throats. Madison was the leader of the first opposition party. He showed himself to be politically fearless. So Madison, in effect, is the father, not so much of the Constitution, but of the Democratic Party. Andrew Burstein, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure to be with you. Andrew Burstein is an historian at Louisiana State University. His latest book is The Problem of Democracy, The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. More than 30 people spent three years reading and digitizing thousands of letters written by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John and Abigail Adams, and James Madison. Bill Kissel, Donna Carty, and Dina Radley were part of that team, and they joined me to discuss their work, which is now available online as part of a national archives project called Founders Online. Bill, Donna, and Dana, you all spent years reading and transcribing the letters of the Founding Fathers. You said you've been deeply moved, maybe even changed by it. Bill, is that fair? Oh, it's very fair. Somewhere in that process, I remember having seen a production of Hamlet, when at the very end, the whole stage was full of blood-covered bodies. And then as the lights came down, all the bodies stood up and came to the foreground and it was as if those people had suddenly, in fact, come alive. And that's exactly how I felt about these letters. I felt as if each one of them individually or collectively should stand up and come forward for what was a curtain call and well-deserved applause. They were, they were just terribly real and personal to me. And Dina, you said they felt maybe less like characters on stage than intimates of yours. This was like a soap opera. Um, I got so involved in, in the reading, and I was one of the uh, few people that was specialized in Abigail Adams' letters. Her writing, handwriting is a little difficult. I could guess a letter. I could guess what that word was because I became so intimately involved with her writing that I could almost anticipate what she was going to say. Donna, the job is what? There were more than 20 of you who were transcribing 
accurately in teams these letters of the Founding Fathers? Yes, we were in teams of two. There were about 40 of us all together. One person had the actual letter in front of them, an image of it, in the original handwriting. And the other person had a transcript that was made some time ago when they didn't have the tools that we have now to be accurate. Uh, The one I remember in particular the best is uh, the town in New Hampshire that wrote to Jefferson that they would be delighted to go to war with France. But the transcriber had them writing, we will arise from our vices and go and gather camels on the dry fields of Mars. (laughs) Now, something had to be wrong with that. And what was it? Well, what they were saying is we will arise from under our vines, our grapevines, and we will go and gather laurels on the dry fields of Mars because Mars was the god of war. So we were always coming on things like that that we had to check the spellings, check the name, because sometimes people would spell them differently. I think one of the things these letters did is began to show us the multiple sides of these people. And Abigail certainly had the Mama Bear side, but she also was not at all hesitant to be a very engaging politician. And she was also, as John was, uh, somewhat of a classicist in that she would quote poetry at the drop of a hat. Who were some of the poets she might refer to? Well, she would certainly refer to Shelley. She would refer to Milton, I suppose. Uh, John would refer to Swift. They quoted very often in Latin or even in Greek. So they did often uh, write with phrases in Latin and Greek? Indeed, they did. I have a feeling that Abigail pulled it out of her memory, whereas I feel that John uh, and Jefferson probably turned to their library to find the appropriate quote. Bill, you've said also that there were many instructions to sons and friends and daughters about certain classical books that should be read for a fully rounded education. Well, he certainly would refer to the Greek works, whether they be Homer, whether they be Euripides, whether they be uh, Sophocles or whatever. There were a a number of references to Shakespeare. Uh, John Adams, again, isn't it funny? I feel so, I call him John. Um, certainly quoted Shakespeare and referred to Shakespeare as an essential part of one's education. There was an inference in all that that if you don't understand or, or be able to quote those things, you simply aren't educated. And Dina, would you find yourself running to look up a book and maybe try to read about it yourself? Yes. Uh, a certain book would be quoted, and I would get on Jefferson Madison Regional Library website and reserve the book and then check it out or listen to a, something on tape. Did you bring the background of an historian to this project yourself? Yes. I majored in political science and history, and I thought I knew what was going on. But I, I found that I did not know most of what I've learned. I knew Abigail Adams was John Adams' wife, and I knew that she was very popular but I was not aware of Abigail Adams' intricate uh, contribution to John and, and the whole presidency. Theirs was a real partnership, much like Hillary and Bill Clinton's. Did you have an appreciation for history through all this of more than just fleshing out the individuals? Did it help you see the global context better? Yes. I was not aware of the events going on in Europe and their influence on the American scene. For instance, uh, John Adams took it upon himself. While he was sitting around in Europe, he got so bored, he took it upon himself to go to the Dutch bankers and uh, got money for us. He single-handedly did that, and he had no permission from the Congress. You mean to finance the revolution? Yes. I had no idea. This was like behind-the-scenes things that are not in history books that I've come across. You got very much the impression of just how tentative a country we were and what the opinion was of the European countries. I mean, they half expected us to disappear. How could you tell? The lack of respect. Uh, The American flag mattered nothing whatsoever. They had no hesitation whatsoever, the British of basically just taking over an American ship, declaring all the American seamen British, if they had originally come from Britain, 
and conscripting them onto their ships. Bill, I asked each of you to bring some of the excerpts of the letters that really struck you in the course of this project to show the depth and breadth of these people. Tell us what struck you. Mm-hmm. This is a letter written in 1815, and this kind of illustrates what I call the everyman side of John Adams. He wrote, I wish I could take a walk with you in all the churchyards and burying grounds in Virginia. How many hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children have lived and died in Virginia to whom no monument has been created? Open your soul, sir, and disclose your natural feelings and frankly say whether you would change ancestors with any man living. I believe you would not. Is there a human being who would? How shall any legislator prevent the rich, the great, the powerful, the learned, the ingenious from distinguishing by durable, costly, and permanent memorials their own ancestors from the descendants of the vast, the immense majority who lie mingled with the dust totally forgotten? And that that struck me. There was a there was a note of pathos in that, a sadness that that uh, I think I can only call John Adams' sense of every man. Uh, this is a letter that uh, he wrote to his great friend Dr. Rush in 1806. So again, he was out of office. We in this Commonwealth are making great advances if not in the perfectibility of human nature, yet in the great art of lying and libeling in the other arch, which grow out of them, such as wielding the cudgel and the pistol. There is little for me to lose in the worst times or cases that can happen. My property is small and the remainder of my life is short, but, oh, my country, how I mourn over thy follies and vices, thy ignorance and imbecility, thy contempt of wisdom and virtue and overweening admiration of fools and knaves. John Adams and patriotism or patriotism, a strong streak in him that runs through almost all his letters. Don't you so admire him for that? I admired him enormously for that, and I, I, I felt a keen sense of where is that today. And so did the common people. They thought these people could do anything. Ha! Huh. They thought they walked on water. Absolutely. There's another wonderful one. I remember Donna and I read this together, and we got almost into a giggling fit over it. It was so funny. This is about Franklin, and it's a letter written by John Adams to a woman whose name I've forgotten. But one excerpt from that is this little touch on Franklin. The Duchess de Polignac was a great admirer of the Grand Franklin. When in company with the king and queen, she was always launching out in uh, panegyrics upon the Grand Franklin. The king sometimes smiled, sometimes snickered, but said very little. After some time upon a visit to the royal manufactory of porcelain at Sev, he gave secret orders to have her chamber pot made of the finest materials and most exquisite workmanship with the most exact portrait of the Grand Franklin painted on the bottom of it, on the inside. (laughs) The king presented this to the duchess with his own hand that she might have the satisfaction of contemplating the image of her grand philosopher and politician whenever she had the occasion to look at it. (laughs) You can imagine Donna and I read that and we just said, is that what he's really saying? We just laughed and giggled. And what are they talking about, the grand Franklin? We think of him as the everyman, a very simple, bright guy. Why would they have mocked him so? He was kind of poking fun at him. Uh, That is, Adams was. He was kind of poking at the, I suppose, the success socially that Franklin apparently had in France that he, John Adams, did not have. And I think there was a touch of envy in that. The French got Franklin. They considered him like themselves. They understood him. Adams, not so much. Adams was very uh, religious and very faithful to his wife, Abigail, where Franklin left his wife, Deborah, and their, I believe, 12 children, took his place as the postmaster general of the United States. She did all the work while he was in France. And he slept with, I don't know how many women over there and just got into the whole raunchiness of the French society, where Adams stuck his nose up at that. But Jefferson also sort of embraced this freer, libertine French culture. Yes, both Jefferson and and, uh, Franklin did. But Adams seemed to be more uh, in tune with the British at that point. 
there was a fantastic relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson when they both served in Europe. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson spent most of his waking hours at Abigail and John's uh, mansion. And after they both came back to this country, they were on totally opposite sides of many, many issues. There were hurt feelings back and forth. And at one point, Benjamin Rush, who is considered the father of psychology and had served in the Continental Congress with John Adams, and they had become very close. But he also kept kept in touch with Thomas Jefferson, and he formed a bridge between them. I'm going to start crying now. And um, if I can read from that letter, this is a letter he wrote to John Adams in December of 1811. And now, my dear friend, permit me again to suggest to you to receive the olive branch which has thus been offered to you by the hand of a man who still loves you. Fellow laborers in erecting the great fabric of American independence, fellow sufferers in the calumnies and falsehoods of party rage, fellow heirs of the gratitude and affection of posterity, and fellow passengers in a stage that must shortly convey you both into the presence of a judge with whom the forgiveness and love of enemies is the condition of acceptance. Embrace each other. Bedew your letters of reconciliation with tears of affection and joy. Bury in silence all the causes of your separation. Recollect that explanations may be proper between lovers, but are never so between divided friends. Were I near to you, I would put a pen into your hand and guide it while it composed the following short address to Mr. Jefferson. Quote, Friend and fellow laborer, in the cause of the liberty and independence of our common country, I salute you with the most cordial wishes for your health and happiness. John Adams, unquote, and he wrote to Jefferson. And as the letters progressed, there were 150-some letters over the next, until they passed away. The irony, you know, and they say this couldn't have been written uh, on the Jubilee year, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams passed away. And it was almost as though they both lived for that day. Jefferson passed away about five hours before John Adams. And uh, John Adams, of course, did not know that. And his final words were something to the effect of Thomas Jefferson survives. Oh, gosh. Don't you get goosebumps thinking about that? At the time, John Adams was 91 and Thomas Jefferson was 83. You were also saying earlier that you had just come to be so touched and immersed in the life of Abigail Adams. Did you mourn her passing yourself? Absolutely as well as when her daughter passed away. Her daughter, Abigail Jr., they called her Nabby, died of breast cancer. I think I was surprised that they even knew what cancer was then. Abigail was so upset she couldn't even go and tend to Abby, who had taken a a lengthy coach trip from where she lived in New York to her parents' home to die there. It was John Adams who took care of Nabby in the final week or two of her life. And I, I would never have thought that John would have the You see him as a very uh, formal kind of stiff person, but he was the one who tended to his daughter. Do you feel as though you're experiencing a loss now? Are you you having withdrawal from this terrific play, this incredible miniseries that you want more episodes and seasons of? We're all shaking our heads, yes. Uh, That's the way, that's the word, withdrawal. I got teary-eyed just talking about this today because I do miss it. It's like it, it was such a part of my life. I've been known to say that uh, we would get out our shovels and dig them up if we could get them to write more letters. I think all of that's true, but I think somewhere in this we're missing something. It's one thing to say we wish the letters were, as they're going to be, readily available. And it's one thing to say we wish they could be read or read by uh, kids or adults fascinated with the period. But it's an altogether different thing to find the enchantment in them that, um, that we found by the immersion. Bill and Dina and Donna, thank you for sharing your insights and with good reason. You're very welcome, and I think we thank you for giving us the chance to share them with more people. <laughs> Bill Kissel, Donna Carty, and Dina Radley all worked on Documents Compass, 
which contributed to the larger Founders Online project of the National Archives. Thanks to the National Archives, there are now more than 150,000 fully searchable letters of the Founding Fathers available for free online. Here to talk about Founders Online are Sue Perdue and Kathleen Williams. Sue Perdue is Chief Information Officer at Virginia Humanities. Kathleen Williams is formerly the Executive Director of the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives. She's now the Chief Archivist at the National Gallery of Art. Kathleen, we've all heard of the National Archives, but few of us have occasion to visit. What do you think most of us would have occasion to recognize that's part of the National Archives? Well, I think that that would naturally fall to what we call the Charters of Freedom, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights. But it also includes all of the presidential libraries that have been established, plus it will include papers of individual presidents before they were presidents. Sue, let me ask you, when you first were charged by Kathleen with digitizing these letters, editing them, getting them online, you had to hire a small army of smart people. We did. We did have to hire a small army, numbering about 35 to 50 people at its highest point, probably 50 people. It introduced a lot of people who had no experience with working with documents to a world that I think changed them. Was it full-time work or part-time? Part-time work. And so many were temporary workers who came into this having retired from the workforce or having done something else entirely different. Uh, we had one woman who'd studied physics, another woman who was a, owned a retail store, school bus driver. You know, it really ran the gamut. Oh, a rock star, a guy who has a rock band. But they all kind of united over this excitement, over reading John and Abigail Adams, or you name it, it was just energizing for them. Could you see that growth over time? Completely. It was like they all sort of adopted particular people. They got really in, just enamored of the people that they were reading, and they became really devoted to the process. So when you began the Documents Compass portion of this Founders Online effort, you realized oh my gosh, I've got to take these 35 to 50 people and create a little knowledge factory. And to do that, you did something I've heard very unusual. You showed them a scene from I Love Lucy. Right. It's it's funny you should say factory because it's just that scene from I Love Lucy where she and Ethel are making chocolates in the chocolate factory and the factory manager yells, speed it up. And suddenly they're moving faster than they can handle them. And I showed that to all of my staff, which was really great because, number one, they all found it really funny. And and many of them knew that show because they'd grown up with it. But it was really to demonstrate the idea that, yes, we we were going to try to keep some sort of balance between the quality production at the same time while maintaining a steady speed. And how many documents did you have from which of the founding fathers? So we had a total of uh, about 51,000 documents. How long does it take to do one letter? Our original prediction was about an hour per letter, and that was all of the steps that needed to take place. But that average doesn't hold up necessarily because sometimes we had letters that were 70 pages long, (laughs) in which case then actually it would take about 10 hours to proofread it. And the other problem, of course, is these people had unreadable handwriting. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or you have documents, documents with holes in them, or the copy that we have to read from is a little fuzzy. So there are a lot of hurdles to get over in order to get a good transcription of a document. Super Dew is Chief Information Officer at Virginia Humanities. Kathleen Williams was formerly the Executive Director of the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives and is now the Chief Archivist at the National Gallery of Art. You're listening to a cantata with lyrics taken from a letter George Washington wrote when he returned home after the Revolutionary War. 
The piece was composed in all parts sung by Gates Thomas, a professor at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Gates says he'd been reading the great biography of George Washington by James Thomas Flexner when he was struck by a quote from Washington's own writing. Returning home to Mount Vernon after nine years away, Washington spied a grove of trees that he had planted just before leaving for war, and he wrote his impression of the site in a letter to one of his French generals. Those trees which my hands have planted by their rapid growth at once indicate a knowledge of my declination and their disposition to spread their mantles over me before I go hence to return no more. For this, their gratitude, I will nurture them while I stay. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Oh.